today. <clears throat> Man, I got so many things I want to share, and I have a lot of information in the sermon. It was such a reminder of the providence of God. It was amazing. I like how Ryan had his best laid plans. He put out his swing set, he put out his pool, he put out his uh, trampoline, he made a beautiful uh, picnic table, and the Lord just came in and messed it all up, didn't it? It just blew it everywhere, right? And isn't that interesting how God takes our plans and just devastates everything? Uh, I'm reminded also, I had a, a cell phone issue. My phone was working fine yet, um, Saturday. Saturday evening, it just began to shut off randomly every five minutes, just quit on me. And all my best laid plans could not bring it back to life again. And so God, in his wisdom, knew I needed a break from my cell phone, right? And what we see is in the providence of God, he brings things up and tears things down. He elevates people and he brings them and humbles them. And that's what we're going to see in our passage. But I also wanted to bring up, I was talking to Miss Ruth this morning, and she was talking about how she was reading ahead, and I always love to hear that. That warms a pastor's heart when he knows you're reading the text ahead of time in preparation. And she said, man, I, I just kept reading and reading, and I just I ended up reading way past where we're going to go. I just read the whole thing. And isn't that fascinating about this book of Ruth? It's in the form of a story. And there's something about stories that can just cut deep into our hearts and bypass all of our pride, because we could pridefully say, oh, I'm not going to do that, or I, I will push against a command from the Lord. But in a story, it's just amazing to see. And we're going to see pride in our passage this morning. We're going to see elevation and drops. We're going to see ups and downs. God is working through a shrewd queen and a sleepless king. And so as you turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5, I want to make you aware of this sermon's title. It's called The Ups and Downs of God's Providence. I use that word a lot, and sometimes I don't define it. And so today, because it's in the title of our sermon, Providence, I want to try to define it. And no, I'm not talking about the city in Rhode Island, but I think it would be helpful to define it in this way. And this comes from a definition from the Orthodox Catechism, not the Orthodox Greek Church, but it's a Baptist Catechism by Hercules Collins. If you don't know what a catechism is, come talk to me. You, are, you need to be catechized. I want to help you understand it. Um, so this is what providence means. The almighty power of God, everywhere present, whereby he does, as it were, by his hand, uphold and govern heaven and earth with all creatures therein. So that those things which grow in the earth, as likewise rain, we know a lot about that, and drought, we know a lot about that, fruitfulness and barrenness, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, in a word, all things come not rashly by chance, but by the fatherly counsel and will. Think about that for a minute. All things are in God's control, and it's not done rashly or uh, that's a bad, that's a hard word to say, harshly or mean. He's not doing it for, to hurt us. He has a purpose in it. So all things that come to pass have a purpose. 
Have you ever had something happen to you and say, that was God? You ever drive down the road and just barely miss an accident? Or um, get you, you sinned greatly and then you miss the consequences and you're like, man, God really rescued me from the consequences of my sin. Praise Him. The truth is, God is governing all things, but sometimes we would like to hear divine commentary on the various events in our lives. I know Ryan would like to know why God scattered all his toys in his front yard, or all his girls' toys in the front yard. Sometimes we want to know why. And that's what Esther gives us. It gives us a divine commentary in story form. So this is a great comfort to me, and probably for you knowing that God is governing all things. And I want, I want to just briefly talk about that. It, it makes us patient in adversity. When hard things are happening, it makes us patient. We can put up with pain when we know it's for a good cause. When you're in the military, you go through ruck marches, and you know that you can last a little bit longer for the good cause of sweating in peacetime so you don't bleed as much in war. Right? There's reasons why we do the things we do. If there's a reason, we understand it. Uh, he makes us thank, it, it makes us thankful in prosperity. When things are good, we thank God for His gifts to us. It allows us to cling to His promises that He will never leave us or forsake us. That in the good times and the bad times, God is working all things after the counsel of His will. And so our passage today has these ups and downs. Fortunes are changed. People fall into favor and out of favor. God directs all these things. And before I get carried away, I think we should pray. So let's pray. Father, I ask you to be with us as we study this text. Lord, there's so much here. There's so much richness that we're going to have to, to move quickly over. So Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that, that needs to hear the message from this text today, that, that you would not let them leave here without hearing your word preach to them. Lord, change our lives. Soften our hearts. Help us to understand that the things that happen in this, in this world are for a reason. Uh, and we may not particularly enjoy the reason at the time, but we know that it is for our good ultimately. So Father, I pray for those that are, are struggling right now for health reasons. Uh, in particular, I think of, of Joy, Pam, and Judy, uh, all that are, are struggling under various illnesses, and, and even sometimes just weird doctor situations, um, and the whole Bowen family, Lord, I lift them up. You, you know their needs. So Father, um, as we approach your text this morning, give us wisdom, soften our hearts to love those community, but also those beyond, that we would show your grace to those who don't deserve it. So Father, I pray for the strength to do this, and we thank you for the powerful providence that so guides everything. Great is your faithfulness. And all God's people said, Amen. Alright, so I want to give us a quick, a quick summary. So last week, we know, or two weeks ago, Mordecai, three weeks ago maybe even, Mordecai was pay, paid a whole bunch of money to the king, King Ahasuera, or Xerxes, because it's easier to say Xerxes, and gave him a bunch of money to exterminate the Jews. Right? He said, I want all these Jews killed. And he's like, I will give you a ton of money, literally a ton of money to make this happen. And King Ahasuerus was drinking and was happy at the time. Said, sure, why not? Let's kill off the Jews. I don't care. I'm a drunk, right? And so he, he decided to do that. And so he made an edict. He made a law 
that said all the Jews will be exterminated on a certain day. Little did he know his, his newfound queen was a Jew. So, we haven't found that out yet. He does not know this yet. It's still a secret. So, Esther, Mordecai's adopted cousin, go, or Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Listen, you need to act. You are placed here for such a time as this. There's a reason that you are the queen of Persia. And so Esther says, Okay, intercede before the Lord, fast, and pray for me. And in three days' time, I will approach the king. And remember, you don't just walk into the king's courtyard and just demand a, a, a meeting with the king, even if you are the queen, because if you do that, you could be executed. If the king doesn't want to see you and he doesn't extend his golden scepter towards you, the executioners that sit right out back where Richard is sitting would put you to death. So you come up inside and the king doesn't want to see you, you will be executed immediately. That's the strictness of the court. We won't give Richard those powers because that could be dangerous. So we get to see how God uses this shrewd queen and a sleepless king to affect providence. God reverses a potential tragedy by using Esther and Ahasuerus. Let's go ahead and look at verse uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So at this point, we have not been super impressed with Esther, have we? I mean, she's won a beauty pageant. That's, the, that's her qualification so far. That's how good she's been. That, that's her only qualification. Now, those of you who have read ahead are laughing inside because you're like, oh, no, she's so much more than a beauty pageant winner, right? She doesn't say world peace is her main drive. Okay, you guys get, some of you get the picture. Uh, some of you have seen that movie. All right, we're not going to get into it. But now we begin to see her wisdom. Verse 1. On the third day, so after all this fasting, Esther, dressed in her royal clothing, stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the golden scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. So what we see is Esther takes the risk. She has stepped out in faith. She put on her best uh, outfit, and she approaches the king. And the king, who has not seen her for more than 30 days, uh, is sitting there, and he sees her come in the front doors, and he's, he, he fought, she finds favor with him. And so he extends his scepter, says, come on forward. I don't need to lose another queen today. And she comes forward, and then she brings a request. And what is the request? Well, come to this banquet. And you know King Ahasuerus will never turn down a party, right? He loves to party. We've seen that so far. In fact, you could almost make the case that every significant event that happens in this book, it happens at a party. So don't make that, young people, as a sign that you should go to more parties. 
but that is what we see happening. So her approach to the king is the first obstacle that she has to get through. So she dresses up, and then she goes in and interrupts the king, even though he doesn't. he's really fickle, right? Sometimes he will do what he wants, sometimes he does what he doesn't want, just weird. And she finds great favor, and he, tongue-in-cheek, offers her up to half the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but if the king said, I will give you half my kingdom, that's a tempting offer right there. I mean, you could, you could kind of get away with, sure, give me half the kingdom. I'm going to make all the Jews move into this side of the kingdom where they won't get executed, right? But instead, she, she pushes forward. She doesn't take this half the kingdom. She, has, she wants far more. So she makes it this far, but she has a plan. She didn't say, oh, I survived. Let me make something up as I go. No, she has planned this out. She is very wise. So she knows the king loves banquets. She knows the king loves to party. So she invites him to her banquet and also the chief advisor, Haman. Interesting that she would include Haman in this party. I don't know about you, but maybe I would try to separate him from this Haman character who is the villain of the story, right? Because if I could separate the two, maybe I could turn him against Haman. I don't know. But she doesn't do that. She brings Haman with him. And so, of course, King Ahasuerus says, yes, let's go. Go get Haman. I don't care what he's doing. We're going to Esther's party. So he goes, five, says they, they went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And so here in 5b, uh, or let's just go start in 6, we see what happens next. Verse 6 says, while, the wine, while drinking the wine, well, there you go. There's the first indicator, right? There's a little bit of uh, irony. The king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Man, here's that kingdom language again. My goodness, Ahasuerus, do you not like to be king? Anyways, he offers her half the kingdom. Verse 7, listen to how Esther answers. This is my petition and my request. Whew, here we go. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. You see what she just did there? She invited him to another banquet. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, expound on this for in a minute. She says, tomorrow I will do what the king asks. So, Esther doesn't give him her request right away. Even though he's drinking, he's probably uh, loosened up a little bit. She delays for a second banquet. But I think she's really crafty with her words. She all but secures a yes to her request. Did you see how she worded it? Look at this. This is honestly from just a purely shrewdness aspect. This is, this is wisdom. So she goes, this is my petition and my request. Let me tell you what I want. If I have found favor in your eyes, if you really like me, if you love me, and if it pleases you, you know, if this, I'm kind of doing you a favor there, King. If it pleases you to grant my petition and perform my request, then come to the banquet. So if you are going to grant my request, come to the banquet. Did you see what she just did? She didn't even give him the request. She said, come to the banquet if you will grant my request. So now she's almost secured a, a yes from the king. She's really just twisted it into such a way that the king kind of has to say yes. 
So whatever she asks them at the second banquet is pretty much a guarantee that she's going to get it. Because the king would then be going back on his word by showing up to her banquet. I mean, just really crafty, isn't it? Anyways, I'm, just, I'm, I'm impressed about little things impress me. Okay? So as I read this, I want to ask myself the question. What makes Esther so shrewd? Not like a shrew, but what wise, shrewd, smart. What makes her so smart? And I think there's, a, there's about three things, maybe four. The first is timing. She spaced out and made it suspenseful, right? So she chose the timing of her petition. First off, she got him to a banquet. And we know King Ahasuerus is comfortable at banquets. That's what he likes to do. He likes to drink. And so he's at the party. And she brings, lets him bring his best buddy, Haman, his advisor, to give him more comfort. Right. So now he's, he doesn't, she doesn't feel, or he doesn't feel as intimidated by what might happen. So she spaces out. But then she makes it suspenseful. Right. Come tomorrow and you'll see what I'm going to ask you. Now, you know, that's kind of a, a little cat and mouse game she's playing. But she's really set the timing with him. Then we have the setting. She did the banquet, right? I already mentioned that. She helped him relax, kept him from being really insecure or defensive, right? I mean, who's going to be defensive at a party unless you're in high school, right? Uh, but there's an immaturity thing there. Anyway, sorry. Uh, but she, she gets him comfortable, and she gets him on his own turf. And then she chose words very carefully. This doesn't sound like a, an ad hoc speech. Like, um, well, I want to ask you something, but it's going to have to wait till tomorrow. Could you come to my party tomorrow? No, she's, you know, if it pleases you, if, if you like me, how about you come to my party tomorrow and then I'll ask you this question. But, you know, go ahead and say yes, you'll, you'll answer it in an affirmative. Right, she actually worded it very carefully. She spent her three days carefully planning this event. And she risked her neck but she does it wisely. So last week, I, I really made a, a big point that we need to be bold in our witnesses. I think we need to be bold in how we communicate to those that are around us. And I said that you have to risk your neck. But the reality is, Esther risks her neck, but she doesn't do it foolishly. She does it wisely, right? So if I'm a missionary, I'm not going to just jump on an airplane, not get the vaccinations for the for the local diseases and run over there without knowing the languages and then try to convert the cannibals that may just eat me. No, I'm going to be wise. I'm going to do some, some homework. I'm going to try to learn some of the language, right? I'm going to do things carefully. And so if I'm going to risk my neck, I need to do it wisely. Use the God-given brain that he has given you. So from a purely wisdom perspective, this blows old, old Jordan Peterson out of the water. Right? This is wisdom beyond his capacity to grasp. Um, we can learn a lot about how to communicate to someone to get them to do what we wish. So how do you seek to convince someone of the truth? How do you seek to convince someone of the truth? So you have the truth. How do you convince someone? You know you're right. Your position is righteous. Now, let's pretend that's true. But your position is right. You know the truth. How do you convince them? Well, first, you look at your timing. If you are trying to share the good news of Jesus with someone, when do you do it? 
Do you go in front of people's houses right before they're leaving for work and try to engage them in a 30-minute conversation about the Lord? Do you go to Walmart when they have six kids and they're dragging them behind them and you're pushing a cart and they're like, by the way, let me tell you about Jesus, right? And they're like, I got 15 groceries and milk is going bad, right? No, you choose your timing. You also look at your setting. If you really want an honest conversation, do you choose the right setting? Facebook is not the right setting to have deep theological conversations, right? We, we all know the truth. It's just a way of expressing your opinion, which is what Proverbs says the fool loves to express his opinion. That's a, that's a proverb about social media, way in advance. Look at your words. Do you use the best words possible? Try to explain in the most reasonable way. Or do you just kind of throw some things together and, and jump into it? Now, there's a time for spontaneity. I get it. Like, sometimes you don't anticipate having gospel conversations. I don't know how many times I'm sitting on the airplane trying to not talk to people because I'm introverted that way, and someone next to me wants to tell me about their life and all their problems, and then I, I know I have to talk about Jesus, right? Because they, I have the answer. I have the antidote to the cancer. So I have to tell them the truth. And so sometimes there's some spontaneity. But if you are really seeking to convert someone to your position— and that could be something as big as convincing them of the gospel, or it could be something as small as just an interpersonal relationship, right? If I want someone to come to my side, do I do it in the best timing, in the best setting, and use the best words? And that's what we see her see here doing. And are you trying? Are you willing to put yourself at risk? Maybe not in the get executed kind of way. Right, but maybe put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Uh, I have a tendency now, recently over the last few years, that when my car is in the shop and I'm offered a shuttle, to say yes to the shuttle. Because, not because I don't have friends that will pick me up, but because I want to share the gospel with the shuttle driver who is now a captive audience. But I'm going to tell you, it could get awkward in there, right? Because they're driving and they may push me out of the car, right? Uh, especially when I start getting deep. So that's the reality. Is are you willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation? Uh, have a hard conversation with your friends, right? What, what, what do we say about Thanksgiving, right? We don't talk politics or religion. Unfortunately, those are the only two things I know anything about, not the politics, just religion, right? And so every time I meet Jessica's family, guess what we're talking about? Okay. So it's, sometimes there's some awkward conversations. But we can gain quite a bit of wisdom from Esther, can't we? How to talk to someone. When you have the truth, how do you talk to them? Do you just blast them with all your canons of knowledge? Or do you have a conversation? So we have this procedure in our house called an appeal. If Jessica or I tell the boys to pick up or go to bed, they have the opportunity to make an appeal. And so this is what it looks like. Boys, it's time for bed. As they are getting up, so the setting and timing, they can say, may I make an appeal? So as they're getting up, not, not sitting back on their book like, may I make an appeal? No, no, they have to start moving in obedience. And sometimes we are less formal. Sometimes they just ask, right? But then they state their appeal. Can I finish this chapter? Or maybe can I have five more minutes, five more minutes to finish this Lego set? And I can respond with a yes or a no. And if it's a no then obedience dictates that they do it right away 
all the way and in a happy way. They immediately get up and they go. But if it's a yes, they can finish their chapter. But that's them setting, using timing and setting and words properly, right? Because if they're like, oh, I had one more chapter, they're not getting anything, right? But if they make the appeal, there's an opportunity. So this is just some, some wisdom in how we do this. And you can use this practically for anyone or with anyone. You want to talk about a promotion with your boss. Do you choose the setting around the coffee? Everybody's drinking coffee early in the morning where your, 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 your boss is probably hungover and super angry and say, hey, by the way, I wanted to talk to you about that promotion I deserved, right? That's probably not the best way to approach it. But if you choose your setting, you choose your words and the timing, you're more likely to get what you want. And what, this is so fascinating. We could stay here all day, but we're going to move on because we haven't looked at Haman very much. But we see something about Haman. Haman feels pretty good about himself. He just got invited to a party with the king and the queen. I mean, that's pretty up there if you're in a kingdom. Man, you're hanging with the president and the first lady. Man, you've achieved. That would be an interesting party. Okay. Um, terrible thought there. Uh, verse 9. That day, Haman left with spirits. Think about that. He's pretty happy. He's a little drunk probably. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Man, the, the, the hubris of Haman. Haman is a prideful man. He just had a banquet, and he's feeling good until Mordecai doesn't get up and tremble at his presence. I mean, think about just how... That guy is getting, living rent-free in Haman's head, right? He, he is living there all the time. Haman is not able to enjoy anything. He can't have a good mood. It's spoiled by Mordecai not bowing to him. Let's look at verse 10. Yet Haman controlled himself. Hmm, that's unusual for Haman. He doesn't typically control himself, does he? And went home, he sent for his friends and his wife, Veresh, to join him. It's a remarkable feat for someone who seemed prone to excessive behavior. This element here is part of the plot. It's kind of a key to understanding the story. Haman, in his anger, is able to control himself to get what he wants. I mean, imagine Haman walking by Mordecai. He gets mad that he doesn't get up. And as he's thinking, you know what? You're going to get yours, buddy. You're a Jew, and the Jews are going to die soon. So, all right. I'm angry at you right now, but you're going to get it. And he's able to move on because he already knows he's probably going to get killed with the rest of the Jews. And then he goes home and he calls for all his friends. He's having the after party and he calls for his wife. And he calls for his fiddlers three. Verse 11. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. What in the world? So Haman at his after party says, guys, I want you to know how rich I am. Just want to share that. Here's my bank account. Here's my 401k. You know, I got, I got a lot going on. But not only that, I got a bunch of kids. I am living the dream. He's so braggadocious, to borrow a word from California. He told all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over all the other officials and royal staff. Man, Haman, there's no, there's no end to this guy's pride, is there? 
It's just so funny to me. He invites his friends over to brag about himself. That's super friendly. Verse 12, what's more, Haman added, let me tell you the icing on the cake. Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited, invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Man, man this guy's prideful. Whew. He bragged about his promotion. The queen invited him to this private banquet. Then he begins to ask for advice. This is, this is fascinating. Verse 13, still, none of this satisfies me. None of this satisfies Bro, you're at like the top of the food chain for a, a non-royal person, but he's not happy. Since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. My goodness. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. So just think about that number for a minute. Not a short gallows. This is pretty extensive. Build some gallows in your backyard, and usually it's like a big pole. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it, then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. Of course, here's the answer. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. All right, so this dude just built 75-foot gallows in his backyard. None of it satisfies him because I see Mordecai. I'm not going to spend a ton of time because we only have like 11 minutes left and I have a whole bunch more to talk about. So think about this perspective. I have a home, a great house, but my neighbor has a Tesla. Or I have the 2020 pickup, but they have a 2021. Think about how unsatisfied these people are. Or I love my job and my work, but my co-worker doesn't respect me. Nothing satisfies. You don't know anybody like that, do you? You don't look in the mirror and see someone like that, do you? And then his wife gives advice. Make a giant gallows so everyone can see it. Then ask the king to hang Mordecai on the morning. Then go party and enjoy yourself. Don't worry about Haman. Get him hanged. Of course, Haman loved the advice from Zeresh. Would you say that's good advice or bad advice? What do you think? Good advice or bad advice? So I have a, a, a mentor who has, a, who has a, a saying, I love you too much to be Zerish. Because the reality is his wife's advice is exactly what gets him killed down the road. I don't want to spoil this for you, but I guess I just did. Spoiler alert. His wife knew what to say to make him happy. Some of you have read ahead and knows how happy he's going to really be when he's hanging from those gallows. But then the next part shows us the hand of God at work, the humiliation of, their, of uh, Haman. Verses 1 through 3, uh, one through three of, verse, of chapter 6. That night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written record or report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for 
all this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Wait a, wait a second. The night before, Haman is going to go and ask for the death of Mordecai. King Ahasuerus can't sleep. And so his solution is to go and read me, the, read me my journal entries for the last few weeks or the last few months. That's the solution. So a sleepless king is going to be what saves Mordecai. What's more, if you were Mordecai, would you be a little annoyed that you haven't been recognized for saving the king's life all those weeks or months ago? You'd probably be a little like, yeah, that's weird. I've never gotten any recognition. But the Lord knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He wasn't rewarded. So God used a delayed blessing for the fulfillment of and rescuing of Mordecai. So then verse 4, we see the irony. Verse 4 begins with, the king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. <laughs> so the king wants to, to honor Mordecai, and Haman just so happens to show up because he wants to ask for the death of Mordecai. Man, the irony is so rich in this. <clears throat> the king's attendants answered him. Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter. The king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Now, Haman's not like a smart guy or anything. He didn't think, oh, that's a trick question, right? He thinks, oh, this is about me. This is all about me. Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them close the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Man, Haman really set himself up, didn't he? Because that's what he wants. He wants to get the royal, the royal clothes. He wants to ride on the royal horse and be marched around and everybody proclaiming how great he is. And so he says, this is what you got to do because I think it's for me. It's so hilarious because Mordecai is honored by Haman who is now unable to ask for the death of the hero of the day. Look at this in verse 11. So Haman, oh, excuse me, verse 10. The king told Haman, hurry and do just what as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. The irony is, is awesome. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He closed more. Man, can you imagine the tension in that room? Mordecai bringing him the robe and he's like, where are you? Mm. Probably eats at him. Mm. Closed Mordecai, paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. So Mordecai is the voice proclaiming the praises of Mordecai. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, 
mournful and with his head covered. He's a sad man, very sad right now. Verse 13 goes on and says, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. A little foreshadowing there, isn't it? What's going to happen to old Haman? His wife and his advisors have already prophesied what's about to happen because he has already begun to be diminished. His wife recognizes that Haman is under the um, care of the Lord. And really, Haman has no time to prepare because immediately upon getting in, he's rushed to the new banquet. So what do we make of all this? I mean, it's a fascinating story, full of themes and turns of events. It's kind of funny, right? There's some, there's some irony there. And I, that's why I love scriptures is because of a lot of the irony and sarcasm. But it's interesting to me that his wife tells him what he wants to hear, which ultimately leads to his downfall. But ultimately, what I want us to see from this is the encouragement that this, pa- this passage brings. God is in control. He rules over the rise and the fall of those who hate his people. Why would God record such an amazing event in such detail to be included in his word? Why would he do that? I think it's for our encouragement. God uses a shrewd queen and a sleepless king to turn evil against his people into good. Haman's gallows was no threat to Mordecai. The climax of God's work of reversal in all of history is what? Another type of gallows. The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. This time, it's the Jewish leaders who expressed hatred and contempt for the beloved Son of God, Jesus. They hated Him enough to erect gallows or a cross, a mechanism of death, to place Jesus on. But here's the thing. Jesus went willingly to that cross for the salvation of His people. Matthew 10, uh, verse 22 says it this way. It says, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who, who endures to the end will be saved. This is a message for the oppressed. This is a message for those who might be suffering, whether it be from natural causes or from just evil people doing wicked and evil things, or even incompetent people. If you are finding yourself hated for the sake of Jesus Christ, you can find your encouragement here. See that God governs all things. Romans 8 is, of course, my go-to passage for encouragement that our suffering has a grand purpose. There is hope. And I'm encouraged by the providence of God. Are you? Is this an encouragement to you? If there was no providence of God, if God was more of a deistic uh, creature who 
created things and then just set them on their course and let them be, there would be no salvation. God the Father planned for God the Son to die on the cross to take our sins and to trade it for righteousness. Like Mordecai, in normal clothing, was replaced by a royal robe and marched through the streets being honored. We, as the scum of the earth, are clothed in the righteousness of His dear Son, being honored because of Christ. Think about that picture for a minute. The royal robes of God the Father that He would drape on His Son, Jesus Christ, are instead draped on you and me. Does anyone in here deserve that kind of salvation? That kind of recognition? Absolutely not. Are we going to be like Haman or Mordecai? I think this should encourage us to think carefully in these dark days. And I think some heavy days that are ahead of us, not only as a, as a people, as, a, as Christians, but also in, just in our country in general. I think this should kind of balloon us up with joy, that we can joyfully be despised by the world because of Jesus Christ. Do you trust in this Jesus? Has your sin been washed away by Him? Has your filthy rags been replaced with His kingly robes? Has that happened for you? If so, you can sing this doxology with us. I want you to listen to the words that declare the providence of God. It starts like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Even when your swing set gets blown about by the wind. Even when your gate doesn't work because something electronic broke in it and you have to deal with it again when you get home. Even when your phone doesn't turn on. Even when the world seems against you. Can you praise God from whom all blessings flow? Let's go ahead and pray as the musicians move forward. Father, we thank you for this mercy and this grace. Lord, that you would place your dear son on the gallows, that you would place your dear son on the cross for us is, is mind-boggling. And even more so that Jesus Christ himself would go willingly to take this death upon himself so that we could have joy and live life in abundance. And then we could praise you from whom all blessings flow. Father, we thank you for these things in, in the name of Christ and through the power of the Spirit, all to the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen.